Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewired, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. This episode is titled, Common Sexual Issues for Women That Don't Get Talked About, and my guest is Dr. Julie Slattery. Dr. Julie Slattery has, um, well, she's a clinical psychologist and an author. How many books have you written, Julie? Uh, I think it's 10 now. 10, wow. Yeah. Uh, And you've got a a weekly radio program called Java with Jill, (laughs) Java with Jill, Java with Julie. Yep. And and, uh, how do you access that program? Oh, you can find it probably in very similar ways that people are finding Relationship Rewire. And just go on your smartphone if you have one and get your podcast app. Type in Java with Julie. Okay. It's J-U-L-I and should show up. Or you can stream it through our website, which is AuthenticIntimacy.com. Okay, great. And uh, if you haven't heard of, of Julie before, she's, well, she's the co-founder of Authentic Intimacy. I'm assuming most people listen who are listening to this have heard of you. And their ministry is, uh, is about reclaiming God's design for intimacy. And what's the, uh, what's the name of the thing that you, well, you were here in San Antonio earlier this year where you're speaking mostly to, to wives. What's that called? Again? Yeah. Um, we had an authentic intimacy conference in San Antonio back, I think in March. Um, so yeah, we hope to be back in San Antonio maybe in 2018. So oh, that'd great. be wonderful. Well, I heard nothing but good things about that. And, and, um, Wives are really, I mean, husbands really encouraged that their wives were going. Yeah, so, so she's So uh, she sits on the, uh, the board of trustees for Moody Bible Institute, and um, her and her husband, Mike, they've been married for uh, over 20 years now. You said 22? 23 years. 23 years. Mm-hmm. And you've got three boys, all teenagers, is that? Yeah, the oldest is 20. So okay. We're, yeah, we're, we're, we're working our way out of a job. <laughs> hoping that they will um support you one day sure that would be nice <laughs> well i want to talk uh, ask you some questions about some things you have in this book but first of all let me um talk about the two books that i have in front of me uh, one is called 25 questions you're afraid to ask about love sex and intimacy and uh you would think if there's just 25 questions it'd be like a little pamphlet but this is a Oh, what, 200-page, almost, uh, yeah, over 200-page book with tons of great questions that a lot of people have. We'll probably be discussing some of those today. And then uh, another one I have here is Sex and the Single Girl. And this uh, is more targeted towards before people find a mate, correct? That's right. Mm -hmm. And um, how to uh, go about that appropriately. And then you've got another one that we might be talking a bit bit about called Passion Pursuit. Will you tell us a little bit? I don't have a copy of that in front of me. Tell us a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Passion Pursuit is a study that Linda Dillo and I created together. And it's a 10-week, pretty intensive, either individual or small group uh, curriculum with video and uh, homework uh, that looks at God's design for sexuality within marriage. And uh, helps you overcome some of the common problems that we hear wives experience within marriage, whether it's, you know, getting past guilt and shame, it's negotiating differences between you and your husband, 
you know, how do you confront counterfeit intimacy like pornography and erotica? How do you make passion a priority um, when you're exhausted from kids? So it's very practical and very biblically based. But I think the number one thing it does is it helps a woman practically see how do I invite God into this area of my life and my marriage? Um, Because a lot of married couples, like it never even occurs to them to pray about their sexual relationship, uh, you know, to invite God to bring healing and uh, to help them in that area. So um, we've just heard from many, many women that this has really been a helpful resource for them. Yes. And I'm, I'm so thankful, you know, I know that there's been Christians that, uh, oh, I like Penner and Penner and, um, Oh, so many uh, that have targeted couples over the years and made talking about sexuality um, try to make it more well, just easy for people to do, and especially in church circles. But uh, I, I'm, I really like what you're doing about addressing women's issues more specifically. I think it's helping women to be able to come out of some dark places that they just felt for whatever reason felt like it was too difficult for them to, to talk about these things and even think about them for some, mm-hmm. for some of them. So I, I've got some, uh, some questions to ask you about, uh, about all of that. So you hear daily from uh, women, both single and married who struggle with their sexuality. Uh, what is, what would you say is the biggest struggle that women are having these days? Oh, wow. Um, I would say that there are probably a handful of really common questions that we're getting. Um, Some of them relate to past trauma. Um, We have about a third of the female population that has experienced uh, some form of sexual abuse or sexual trauma. So that's a lot of women that are carrying around uh, memories of that. They're not sure how to pursue healing. That obviously plays out in dating relationships and in marriage um, so that would be kind of one cluster that we get. Um, we get a lot of questions about um, in marriage, difference in sexual drive, either I have no sexual drive and my husband does, or the opposite being true, that my husband's just not interested. I feel rejected. I'm not sure what's wrong. And then we get questions about pornography addictions. Um, so those would be some of them. And then you add to it all the confusion that's happening with the changes in our culture. Uh, so there are definitely a lot of questions coming in. Okay. I, w- I want to take each one of those uh, briefly. So that the first one um, you talked about, uh, about a third of uh, women have experienced some kind of sexual abuse or trauma. A lot of times we don't even think of men experiencing sexual abuse very much, but Oh, we do. We know. We do know that happens. Probably nothing uh, near to the numbers that that experience that women experience that. But so you know, the obvious rape and and molestation would be in that that sexual abuse. But are there some uh, some forms of trauma that are just not talked about much, or they're kind of not seen as a big deal, but they they really do deeply wound some people that that you see would be a big piece of that that one third. Yeah, you know, I would say that a lot of women don't know how to define a sexual violation that didn't involve uh, like intercourse or penetration. Uh, So if a woman uh, experienced that as a child, as a teenager, we call that abuse, we call that rape. But when uh, there's a situation, for example, where a family member 
is constantly making sexual comments. Uh, maybe there's touching involved uh, that doesn't lead all the way to penetration um, where there's uh, teasing or, um, you know, even just really degradating comments made to a young girl over and over again about her sexuality. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the kind of things that you grow up with a very warped view of who you are and your sexuality and whether or not you can trust your sexual desires or trust men. Um, but, but we don't know how to define those. Yeah. So, uh, so the, the one third number I'm using relates more to what we would traditionally see as sexual abuse or violation but when you include these categories, and again, even including women who have been exposed to pornography at young ages, uh, a parent leaves it lying around or it watches it in front of them, you know, that is a form of sexual trauma that is going to play out in how you view sexuality and what that looks like when, you, when you're intimate in a relationship. Do you find that um, when there has been that with women, uh, well, I, th- I think it's difficult for men, we deal with the couples a lot of times that were, they've been married for sometimes decades before the husband will reveal that he's had some kind of sexual trauma, to, even mm-hmm. to his wife. Uh, I would imagine you find this, I'm just imagining, so I may be wrong, that you, you would find it even more uh, uh, common with women, with wives. Well, well I, you know, I think the stigma is even greater for men that have been sexually abused. Um, We tend to see this um, stereotypically as a woman's experience. Mm -hmm. And so um, the research would show that about a half of the percentage of women that have been abused, that that would be the men. Um, So if it's maybe one out of three uh, women, it would be like one out of six men. So you're still talking about a lot of men who've experienced this. But often their their perpetrators were males. Um, so when a when a boy has been sexually abused by a man or a teenager has, then you've got the additional issue of does that mean I'm a homosexual? Uh, there's another layer of shame added to that to even the great shame of being violated. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I think that it's even more difficult for a man to admit that out loud because of what that potentially means to him with his masculinity. Um, But now having said that, what we experience is that a lot of women who've been sexually violated as children or as teenagers don't tend to deal with the full brunt of it until later in life. So they may have a vague sense that something happened. They may have some memories of that, but they kind of feel like in their teens and 20 years, okay, I'm past that. Um, But for many women, this starts to become more of an issue when they themselves have children. Um, When they're in their 30s, when they're in their 40s, we see that all of a sudden uh, the flashbacks can come, the memories are stronger, triggers are greater. uh, And so a lot of women in that age, age range are saying, I didn't think I needed more healing for this, but apparently I do. It's really starting to impact my parenting and my marriage. Um, So that would be kind of a common trend line that we see. Yeah. Well, you know, sexuality is so profound that I think a lot of people may try to brush aside, uh, sweep under the cover some kind of uh, negative sexual experience they had because they don't think it fits in that category of rape or molestation. I mean, you were talking about just like teasing uh, 
you know, I, I, I can remember, well, I was a late bloomer. So I remember in middle school when all the other boys had been in, uh, into puberty for a couple of years. And so hair was showing up, you know, in, in places where, uh, they weren't used to. And, and I was way, but I didn't start my growth spurt till uh, like 10th grade. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you know, this, that, that experience of, uh, well, I had one experience in the locker room with, uh, you know, we're all getting showered and, and it, one of them decides to point out that I don't have any hair and, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, then several join in and making fun of that. And, and that would not, you know, that's, that wouldn't fall into the category of, uh, necessarily abuse or molestation, but something like that, I think could cause some, some, some wounds that I think it would be helpful to couples to understand each other, to, to talk about things like that with each other. Yeah, absolutely. What you're saying is so true, John, because you can walk away from that experience with unspoken beliefs that there's something wrong with my body. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not the kind of man I should be, uh, you know, and you're not aware of feeling that kind of shame, Mm -hmm. but that can play out in your marriage uh, just from one event like that, that, that you kind of buried and you never thought about how that might've impacted you. Sure. And I would think another one, and well, I know it is because I run into it with couples all the time, but uh, that the shame that their church, their religion has put on them um, makes, has, has kind of left them. Well, I'll say this. Yeah. I grew up in the church of Christ. So Mm -hmm. my, and my wife loves to dance. Mm-hmm. But every time we go to a wedding and she's out there and come on and dance and I'm and I'm, like, I'm kind of joking but kind of not like I feel like I'm sinning when I'm yeah <laughs> yeah so um is there an element of that in when with people that you've experienced with it yes yeah um yeah this is something we talk about a lot in passion pursuit um, but. I think that most people, uh, if not all people, learn about sexuality within the context of shame. And, uh, and the obvious ways of that happening would be if you've been violated or abused. But we don't think about the fact that when you grew up constantly hearing that, uh, that sexuality represents sin and that your sexual desire as a teenager is wrong, uh, that you shouldn't you shouldn't think about it. You shouldn't touch yourself. You know, those parts of your body uh, are off limits even to yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you naturally grew up with this underlying belief that there's something sinful and wrong about sexuality. Uh, and, uh, you know, you train yourself to say no to that. And if you don't say no, you feel tremendous guilt and condemnation. And so uh, when you get married, w- that doesn't just go away. You know, those underlying beliefs about sexuality being somehow inherently sinful and wrong and sexual passion being something that's dangerous, you can carry that into marriage without realizing it and feeling like, um, you know, hey, a godly person is going to be somewhat restrained even in their marriage because God doesn't want us to have too much fun. Or, mm-hmm. you know, this, this we'll even joke, you know, this feels so good, it must be wrong. Uh, <laughs> But, but I think that really hampers a lot of married couples from experiencing the freedom that God designed them to have. Is your marriage getting worse instead of better? 
Has there been talk of separation, or is either spouse considering divorce? If any of these apply, then Love Reboot is your answer. Come join the hundreds of couples who are once in despair and headed for divorce, but are now experiencing a thriving, growing relationship after attending a Love Reboot weekend. Visit us at growinglovenetwork.org for more information on an upcoming Love Reboot workshop. Hello, this is Max Locato. You're listening to Relationship Rewired. Well, and we could go into probably have you just done a whole show about talking about how to experience that freedom in, in more healthy ways, because uh, I think that's such a huge thing. You know, uh, we've been, like I said, Joanna, I've been married for over 32 years now. And, you know, part of our, uh, the joy of our sexual relationship is that we kind of got to a place where we said, you know, we're not, we're not ever going to get this right, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to have some, some times that are great and, and um, where we roll over and say, I think that was in the top five of all time. And then, you know, we're, we're going to have some ones that were just like, well, that was a, a lot of work for nothing. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, but, but the, one of the things that has helped us the most is just, is, uh, most of the time afterward, you know, we'll say something like, thank you, God, for that time together, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think, well, I heard it years and years ago. I can't remember if it was Penner and Penner, but uh, talking about inviting God into the bedroom. He's there anyway. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the more that we recognize that, oh, he created this, but not just for reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, it, he pre- created it for uh to be enjoyed and to be celebrated and, and it, to reach a deeper level of intimacy with each other than, than we can with other people. Um, yeah. So, well, anyway, I could, I could go way off on that, but I really wanted to ask you some, some more questions. So you said another one you were talking about was um, different levels of, of libido that uh, you often, you know, are dealing with one of the big ones you're dealing with is uh couples with differing libidos. And uh, you said that sometimes it's the uh, wife who has a higher, you know, we just, our common uh, perception in culture is that it's always the wife that has a low one and the husband that has the high one. And, and that is probably more common, but uh, I would, I would think that it would be somewhat difficult for a wife who has a higher libido than her husband. Uh, That would be harder for her than the typical wife. And, and I'm just maybe being a bit sexist here, but that, that, uh, is there any truth to that? Do you think? Well, uh, I think that uh, you're hitting on something there, particularly when this has been the regular pattern of their marriage. Uh, you know, there's certainly times in marriage where a man, for example, might be going through grief or depression or tremendous work stress, uh, or maybe he has a medical condition he's taking an antidepressant or a medication that is um, that is suppressing sexual drive or sexual performance ability Mm -hmm. in those situations I think a woman copes with that fairly well and just understanding that this is a season but Mm -hmm. my husband still desires me I can remember times where he was pursuing me but when it's it's that case throughout the whole marriage, and we're actually seeing this become more and more of an issue uh, within the last 10 or 15 years, 
the woman really uh, begins to believe that this is something wrong with her and that she is not desirable, uh, particularly when she hears all the jokes uh, that are happening in culture or friends that are like, my husband won't stop chasing me around. You know, I wish he'd leave me alone. Mm -hmm. And she feels uh, sometimes she never, never share with anybody that this is the case in her marriage, but she feels this, uh, this shame of there, there's something wrong with me. Uh, why did, when my husband chase me, uh, what am I doing wrong? And uh, so we're not just now talking about a sexual issue. We're talking about, um, a woman's worth and her feeling of security and being loved within the marriage. Yeah. Cause there's so much stigma that, uh, if, if you're female and you have a high libido, it's almost, uh, some bad terms get associated with that. Yeah. Like horror. And, and not only slut. that, yeah. I mean, John, I think that's part of it is that women can feel like, um, maybe there's something wrong with me that I have a sex drive, but it's more so, when my husband's not pursuing me or he's not responding to me sexually, that hits uh, at the very core of a woman in terms of wanting to be desired, um, mm. wanting to feel beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's, I think, where the greatest pain comes. You know, I have uh, so often when I'm dealing with the couples where, as usual, the, the when the higher, the husband is more often the one with the higher sex drive and, and that's a big issue for them. In fact, I can just think of a couple I was working with yesterday, but, um, and, and so often the husband says, you know, it's not about it's, it's, I want to be wanted. I want mm -hmm. to be desired. Yeah. And it's not so much about the, the physical act. Um, but I, I think that goes both ways. Um, you know, but I think in, in when you're talking about wives like that, it might be helpful for wives to understand too that for the most part, most men who are good-hearted men, it's it's about uh, I want to be desired. Mm -hmm. I want, yeah, 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 absolutely. And you know, it plays out a little differently in the genders because um, even when we look at the theology of sex, that male and female at some level represent this relationship of Christ and the church. We see that in the Bible. Um, Christ is the one that initiates and the, and the church responds to his sacrificial love and to his initiation of love. And we see that same thing um, being the kind of the normal pattern within marriage. This doesn't always have to be the case, but a husband has higher levels of testosterone. He's more likely be thinking about sex uh, with his wife and so he initiates and when his wife responds he feels uh, he feels adequate when she doesn't respond for whatever reason even just because she's too tired he feels like there's something wrong with him or he feels rejected uh, so uh, for a woman when a husband is never initiating uh, she she feels again what's wrong with me why why isn't my husband pursuing me um, so, you know, those are some of the nuances that are a little different between uh, the genders when you see this mismatch in desire. Yes. It's my experience that one spouse prefers intimacy through conversation more than the other. And they're almost always married to somebody who prefers intimacy more through sex than conversation. Yeah. So I think it's it's so important that those when we whichever side of that we're on, 
that you, when you understand, you know, that this, this feeling of being rejected by the other, uh, well, let's just say that I'm, I'm the person, well, I am in our marriage that, that prefers sex as the avenue to intimacy and my spouse is prefers conversation. Um, if I am feeling rejected when I'm spurned when, you know, oh, tonight really it's so late, you know, um, I'm so tired. You know how hard a day I've had, and, but I'm feeling rejected inside. But the, the, I would imagine a very similar feeling happens when my wife says, Hey, can we sit down and talk? And I'm going away. Well, you know, I was planning on watching this tonight. <laughs> yeah. That there's a, a similar feeling of rejection that we just don't get. Oh, you just wanted to talk. Well, I don't feel like, I don't feel like talking right now. <laughs> if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really true. Particularly if that happens over and over again. Um, yeah. But the difference with sexuality is your your wife can go call her friend and talk to her friend, mm-hmm. and although she might be sad that she didn't get that connection with you, um, there's another avenue for it. What becomes really difficult with sexual intimacy is if that if that's how you feel close to your spouse, uh, and there's there's a, a closed door there then where do you go with that? Um, you know, it's like you don't, you don't have a teammate now yeah. to channel that sexual drive and, and just who you are as a sexual person. Um, so it becomes more complicated for that reason. Yeah, that's huge. I'm glad you said that. Um, it, it means so much uh, more coming from a female than for a, a male to say that. Yeah. So um, you you said that in the past ten years or so that that there has been an increase. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sound something like you said. There's been an increase in where we see the wives having the stronger libido than the husbands. Mm-hmm. Is is that uh, is that due to uh, that we're just finding that out more, or it's no. it's actually happening? It's actually happening, and okay. I think it, I think it's happening for for two reasons. Um, one is that uh, we see a, a consistent trend in our culture of women becoming uh, more masculinized, and I kind of use air quotes when I say that. But what I what I'm referring to is women being encouraged to be assertive, um, to be even aggressive, um, to take what you want to, um, you know, we even look at higher education. Women are outpacing men and and pursuing higher education and having goals. And we actually see that when a woman becomes more goal-oriented like that, she she hits a rise in testosterone in her body. Um, So her her chemistry is even changing. At the same time, we see that men are becoming more passive and in some ways more feminized, that they're not encouraged uh, to have goals. They're not encouraged to be assertive. Uh, they're becoming very passive. They're being, they're engaging in technology, video games, and uh, pornography, and things like that that are shutting down uh, that sense of competence. Uh, and I think that's some of what we're seeing playing out in younger marriages: is that women are are more the initiator, more the leader. Uh, even their their body chemistry is beginning to change. Um, so that's that's one part of it, and that's not all bad. That women are becoming more assertive. I think it's not all bad that, that men are becoming more sensitive and emotional, but we have lost something in those changes. Uh, we've lost something key to femininity and masculinity. Uh, so that's one trend that I think explains this. But I think the other trend 
is how common it is for men to come into marriage with a history, a pretty significant history of pornography. And uh, the research shows us that when somebody uses pornography on a regular basis, they their brain adapts to that kind of sexual stimulation to where their brain actually isn't going to respond and therefore their body isn't going to respond to normal sexual stimulation. And so, for example, a man who started looking at pornography at the age of 12 and has consumed that over 10, 15 years is a Christian man, gets married and thinks this problem will be solved once I, I have a wife to have sex with. The first time he sees his beautiful wife naked, uh, this is what God has created for him to be able to respond to sexually. His body doesn't respond. Uh, and then he figures out that his wife actually uh, is very difficult to interact with sexually, that he's got to be patient and use self-control. And it's not all about instant gratification. And so young husbands are finding that sex within marriage isn't fulfilling. And many of them are going back to pornography and masturbation because that's what they've been trained on. So I think that's a secret issue and problem that we're, that we're probably not addressing a lot. That's accounting for a lot of what we're seeing in this trend in marriage. Yeah. So, yeah, cause I celebrate that, that, um, that women are becoming more empowered in our culture and, and I hope that only continues, but it sounds like you're saying, um, part of what you're saying is it's not trading one for the other that uh, in Genesis, when it talks about uh, we're made in his image to uh, uh, male and female, I'm only half of that at best. Mm -hmm. if, if I was perfect, I would mm -hmm. still only be half. And so part of one of the wonderful mysteries and journeys of marriage is taking on more and more of what that other person is, that other aspect of God, but, but not losing who you are already. Does that make any sense? It does. Uh, and I'm a woman. Uh, you know, I have, I have a doctorate degree in psychology, which, uh, which I couldn't have done probably 50, 60 years ago. Um, so I absolutely uh, am benefiting from the empowerment of women and believe in that. But I also think that we have to be really careful that we don't deny our femininity because there's something very special about uh, the femininity of a woman that is more responsive than an initiator. Now, there are times as a woman where I want to initiate something, and I'm not just talking about sexually. I want to initiate something in my family. I initiate things at work. But as a woman, God has created me primarily to be a responder, uh, to be someone who is, um, who is studying my husband and children, uh, who supports them and responds to them and empowers them. And, you know, a good example of this is I have three boys kind of in the dating range, and we're really trying to teach our boys that they should be the ones to take risks in romantic relationships. Uh, that is a risk for my 14-year-old son to ask a girl to homecoming. Uh, he should take that risk um, because he's the one then that's making himself vulnerable instead of forcing a, a young woman to be vulnerable. And, uh, and sometimes when my boys have asked, the girls have said yes, and other times they've said no. But even when they've said no, we say to our, our son, it's such a good thing that you put yourself on, on the line to, uh, to approach a young woman. 
that's a beautiful thing um, because that's a piece of masculinity that we don't want them to lose. So, uh, so I think all of that is important for us to be talking about and be teaching as we're parenting and as we're teaching marriage that men and women are not the same and we don't want to lose those distinctive ways that God has created us. Hmm. Well, um, and this, this question is one that, um, your assistant suggest it, it was a suggested question. And the reason I'm saying that is because these are not my words, <laughs> Okay. but you, you've got a, a, um, a title in your book that's and uh, in, in one of the chapters. Uh, well, the, the, I'm sorry. The title of the book is you, you're afraid to ask questions. You're afraid to ask. Mm-hmm. So why are women so afraid to discuss these struggles? Do you think? Mm. Well, because they've been taught not to, you know, particularly within Christian settings. Um, you know, go, go into a church, go up to your pastor and ask a question about pornography. Ask a question about recovering from sexual abuse. You know, ask a question about the difference between you and your spouse having sexual desire. Uh, ask about same-sex attraction. And in most churches, you're likely to get uh, a deer in the head like look or stammering or, you know, that sort of being shut down. I, let's just pray for you right now because, <laughs> uh, because the pastor doesn't know what to say. Uh, hasn't been equipped, hasn't been, a tra- hasn't been trained in these things. Um, he doesn't preach from the pulpit on these things. And so uh, what we learn is that church is not a safe place to have uh, spiritual or sexual conversations. And it's not a place to ask your questions that you should Google that or you should pick up Cosmo or, you know, there's lots of other sources where you can get this kind of help, but not church. Go see a therapist. So, you know, I think that has just been reinforced that you don't ask your parents, you don't ask your pastor, you don't ask the person who's discipling you. You can ask them about spiritual things, but not sexual things. Um, The other reason why is because when you ask a sexual question, you really are making yourself vulnerable. Uh, Mm. If you admit to, for example, as a young woman struggling with something like masturbation, how is that person going to respond? Are they going to judge you? Or will you be met with, um, you know, hey, this is a common thing. Let's talk about this. Uh, and so it is a huge risk to, uh, to share something so vulnerable and ask for help. Uh, so when we do conferences at Authentic Intimacy, at every event, we have a live Q&A where women are allowed to anonymously text any question they want. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would say that usually we get about half the women will text in a question. So we'll get hundreds of questions in an event. And, um, and those questions themselves minister to the women that are there because it shows them that I'm not the only one who's struggling or I'm not the only one who has that question. What's, what's one of the common ones you get that some people wouldn't, wouldn't think that would be a common question. Um, we'll get a question like in a church setting, I'm having an affair with another man and God's convicting me that this is wrong. How do I get out of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll have questions that uh, I've struggled with same sex desire. I've never told anyone. What do I do with that? Is it wrong? Uh, we'll get a lot of questions about abuse. Uh, how do I recover from the abuse I suffered as a child? And we'll also get a lot of questions, I think, particularly from single women. I have messed up so much in, in my life in this area. 
I don't believe God could forgive me. Uh, does he, does he hate me because mm -hmm. of the things I'm doing? Um, so as you can imagine being in a room where those questions are being asked, that becomes a pretty sacred ground uh, yes. because there's so much honesty and pain. Yeah. Uh, that's it. So just being able to ask the questions is what we've got to be striving more towards creating that environment. Yeah, that would, I, w I can imagine that'd be very powerful just in, in, you know, if you're sitting there in a group of 400 women and you find out that 70 of them have the same question that you've been afraid to ask anybody else in your life, that's, mm -hmm. that's very helpful. I have a confession to make. There's a podcast I've been listening to for several months now. Like Relationship Rewire, this particular podcast I've been listening to relies on listener support. Up until just a few minutes ago, I had done nothing to support what they do. I was about to record this message when I was suddenly convicted to stop what I was doing, so I got on the web and sent them a donation. If you're like me and you believe in giving back when you can, you may also be like me, and sometimes when you're listening to those requests for support, you tell yourself, hey, I need to do that. But you're busy driving somewhere or something, so it's just not convenient, so you forget. So, if you're like me, it takes being convicted enough to stop what you're doing for a moment and do that. Now, we want Relationship Rewire to be accessible and helpful to everyone, and we know that not all of our listeners have the ability to support us at this time. With more than 13,000 downloads a month, you might think that Relationship Rewire has plenty of donors, but the mindset of most podcast listeners is that a podcast should be free. But it's not free. It takes a lot of time and expense to bring you this valuable information and to have these guests on the program that bring you the stimulating and helpful discussions we have on Relationship Rewire. Furthermore, we keep striving toward even better quality and even more interesting, engaging, and helpful episodes in the future. So please, stop what you are doing for just two minutes, hit the pause button, and go to growinglovenetwork.org, then hit the donate button, and help us bring more help to more people. Even a $5 donation means a lot to us, but if you're able to give more, please know we will put it to good use. You can even request that all or part of your donation go directly to the scholarship fund, which is designated to offset the cost for couples attending our three-day Love Reboot workshop. Incidentally, almost half of the couples who attend Love Reboot receive scholarship assistance. Growing Love Network is a nonprofit organization, so your donation is 100% tax deductible. If you donate now, as always, as just one of our ways of showing our appreciation for you, we won't continue this episode until you're done and have hit the play button.
Well, so you, the, you were talk, touching on that last one about, you know, the females that, uh, the single ones that, uh, you know, um, can I be forgiven? And um, I, I think this is a, a big one for a lot of, well, I know it is, you know, sometimes I get invited to teach the young singles class and there are so many sexually active uh, singles in our churches and well uh, some years back we were doing a series on sex and one of the sermons I was gonna they asked me to, to take and that was the one where everybody sent in their anonymous questions mm-hmm. and probably between uh, for the the people that were you know single the biggest question I got was is you know living together wrong is uh, premarital sex really all that bad those kind of questions and um we we know that in spite well you and i know that the the research about cohabiting which goes back to the 70s uh, over and over again just says it's not a good idea mm-hmm. but our our culture continues it it becomes more and more the norm even amongst uh, christians so, so why do you think that is? Why is it that, that that research says it's not a good idea? It messes up pretty much every category that you can think of of relationships. But uh, so, so why why is it why well why does cohabiting hurt relationships? Well, why does it hurt relationships? Um, there, there. Obviously, the as you mentioned, the research is showing it does hurt relationships. Uh, it actually sets you up to be more likely to divorce, for there to be infidelity in the relationship down the the line, things like that. Um, there's a researcher out of the University of Denver, Dr. Scott Stanley, who has, I think, a really good theory on why that is, and uh, he calls it squishy commitment. Uh, like he calls it sliding versus deciding that when you live together before you get married, you're actually sliding into a commitment where it's like, uh, I'm not really sure. Let's try it out. Uh, and what that does is it sets up a dynamic in the relationship that is all about me as a consumer. Uh, I want to try you out and make sure that I really know what I'm getting before I commit to you. And um, that makes both people feel like you're constantly needing to perform for the other person and that you have to put on your best face that sexually you have to make sure you're pleasing because the moment you're not, then, uh, then it's fair game to walk away from the relationship. And what Dr. Stanley is saying is that that mindset and that insecurity actually will follow you into a marriage relationship where there's not a level of trust and commitment that no matter what happens, I know you're going to be there with me, uh, that you still have that consumer mentality. So, um, you know, that's kind of what some of the researchers are saying is underneath the, the statistics that we're seeing. Yes. You know, um, and, and I would say that very much of that plays out, even if you're not cohabiting, but you're just in, involved in premarital sex because, uh, well, I think I love this person. That they, I think they love me. Well, we or, or we know we love each other. Um, so isn't isn't that okay? Um, we're probably going to get married, or we even plan to get married. But they're still then they're entering into a a part of what's set apart for marriage without the full commitment. That that would be a a piece of of why that's can be damaging. You, you know, I was in. Um, 
some years back I was going through the Nashville airport and uh, I was going down to pick up my rental car and uh, there was two young ladies at the counter and I handed them my card, which, you know, had our organization on, on, on the bottom of it to, to pay for the card. She said, so what is this? Are you some kind of marriage counselor? And I said, yeah, I'm some, <laughs> some kind of marriage counselor, some kind. Uh, she said, well, I have a question for you. And, and she weighed the other girl over. She said, what do you think about people living together before they're married? And I went, oh boy. Um, <laughs> I said, so, okay, let me guess. Uh, both of you are living with somebody and that you're not married to. And your parents are saying this is, you know, we're in Nashville. So I'm kind of putting two, to, two and two together here. And your parents are saying it's not good, but they can't tell you a good reason other than God says it's bad. And you can't find a scripture that says that specifically. <laughs> So, uh, well, I'm not going to go into the, the morality part of it. Let's just talk about what the, the research says it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, why would you buy a car that you haven't taken for a test drive? Mm-hmm. And so well, and my answer to, to them was, well, okay, you, you're, you work here at a rental car place. And um, uh, do either of you, are you making payments on a car? You, oh, yes, we both are. Have you, have you ever changed the oil on that car? Yes. Have you ever vacuumed it and washed it? Yes. And well, you, you've rented cars too, right? Yes. Well, have you ever changed the oil on a rental car or washed it or vacuumed it? No, you just, you treat it very differently than when you're committed, when you're fully committed, the, the relationship is very different than one where you're trying it out. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a great teaching point. Boy, <laughs> that was that was really a, a great way to share that with them, and it's so true. Yeah. But there, there's got to be more to it than that, you know. There's, um, I don't, I just, I struggle constantly with with this concept with with uh, singles, and it just doesn't seem, you know, uh, you've got to have some light I, that that I haven't seen here to shed on this that that stresses the importance of this uh, more than people are understanding. What, well, what do you, you know, well, I think some of it is in the biology. Uh, you know, God designed our bodies intentionally to be sexual. And, uh, and now, now that we have the medical ability and technical ability to see, for example, what happens to the brain during sexual activity, Um, what happens in a relationship, what hormones are released and things like that uh, during sexual activity, we're seeing that God's design for our bodies actually reinforces this whole idea that sex was meant to be experienced within committed relationship. Um, So for example, like the research shows that that when a, a woman and a man have sex outside of a committed relationship, the woman gets these high doses of oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone. Uh, and makes her feel close to this guy. The man gets a high dose of testosterone, which suppresses the oxytocin release, which makes him more likely to be aggressive and to actually go seek another sexual partner. Um, So when you look at that kind of research, you're saying that this is actually showing that even within our bodies, God has designed sexuality to be within uh, a covenant relationship. Um, So basically, um, particularly a a male's body responds differently between um, sex and a committed relationship and sort of a one night stand sexual encounter. And within a committed relationship, the more often a man has sex with his wife, 
this he gets this huge release of oxytocin. So he feels close to his wife. He feels bonded. Uh, oxytocin actually makes him not see the negative of his wife. She looks more beautiful to him. Uh, he falls in love with her all over again. But when it's a new sexual experience with a, with a different partner, uh, what happens in a man's body is that that burst of testosterone um, actually encourages aggression. It discourages sensitivity and emotion. And uh, it heightens the sexual desire to, to go to another new person. Um, so we see, uh, again, and we're just starting to learn some of this, but God has designed our bodies and our brains in such a way that when we use sex within the uh, committed relationship, it, it is a bonding mechanism that cements the two people together. You get, uh, you get all of the reward centers of your brain being highlighted. You actually, in a very healthy way, become addicted to that other person. But when sex is used outside of that, we see that the woman is still continuing to bond, but the man isn't. And that's why women become so much more vulnerable in cohabitation and hookup relationships and in what we see happening at large in culture. Yeah. And I would add to that, we know that uh, like during um, when two people are falling in love, their dopamine levels are much higher, their norepinephrine levels are higher, uh, their serotonin levels are lower, which all that concoction together is pretty much like the same thing you get from meth or coke. <laughs> yeah. And um, But then that goes away typically six to 18 months if they're uh, around each other at, at a normal rate. But there's another study, I don't know how, not too long ago that came out. You might have, you might be able to quote who it was. I can't remember. But they found in these couples that are in their 70s, they've been married 40 years, and they're starting to have elevated levels of dopamine and uh, norepinephrine and lower levels of serotonin. Wow. Yeah. Have, have you heard about that? I have not. Boy, is that exciting. Yeah. And, uh, well, and then... Um, you know, before they were measuring all that back, uh, oh, what was his name? David Schnarch at uh, Louisiana State University. Did you, mm-hmm. you, uh, he, he wrote the book Constructing the Sexual Crucible. And mm-hmm. this, and he started the study back in the early 70s. But the, the, basically, the synopsis of the book is that the couples who have the most fulfilling, exciting sex lives are people who have been married 40 plus years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, that's that's so encouraging, um, you know. And and again, that's how God designed our bodies to work. And what really frustrates me is that the people that know this research are the same ones promoting this kind of common wisdom that you know, just freedom is having sex with whoever you want, and uh, you know, experiment a lot before you before you settle down. And it's like and that's coming from you know college campuses and universities where they have this research that shows you that that's the worst advice you could give somebody. Um, So hopefully someday we'll start to get honest about this research, even within sexual academia and, uh, and start to really say uh, uh, worldly wisdom really isn't wisdom at all. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the, um, some of the early pioneers, uh, their names were Bumpus and Sweet back in the 70s who were the, the first ones that were looking closely and researching on on cohabiting. And uh, they were cohabiting at the time when it was kind of new. 
And so they thought, well, we need to have some scientific, other than just our opinion and the way the culture is moving, we need to have back this up scientifically. So they did a scientific study and it showed, no, it's not a good idea. So they thought, oh, we did our study wrong. So they did a second study and it showed the same thing. They did a third study and showed the same thing. So that's when they started to try to say we were wrong. But by that time, the, the culture had already shifted and nobody wanted to hear it. Yeah. 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 It's sad. Yeah, it, it really is. Well, that's a whole nother topic about <laughs> why we choose to, you know, uh, well, you and I are both scientists and, and we both see that science is just a way of trying to understand God. It is a yeah. way, but it, it, when it, whenever you look deeply into it, 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 it always lines up with, with God and uh, it can't help but do that. So if you got yeah. if if they don't agree, then you got one or at least one or the other wrong, right? You That's got right. your theology Very wrong. Or, well, um, uh, boy, I could just go off so much and more, um, but I've used up your time, Julie, and I I would love to have you back on another time and talk more about some of these things that we just hit on the surface about. Mm-hmm. But I sure appreciate having you on. I think we've got, got some uh, a lot of points and learned a lot from you today. So I really appreciate having you on here. Well, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Anything that you uh, were chomping at the bit to say in closing? No, not necessarily. I think we covered a lot. So <laughs> would love to do this again sometime. We sure did. Um, okay, and we can get in touch with what you do, find out your schedule of where you're going to be with um, Authentic Intimacy. Uh, what do you have coming up with that? Um, let's see. I am going to be in Ohio next month and uh, in Florida in November and Florida again in December. All right. And then Ohio, January, San Antonio in April. Yeah. Okay. Jumping around a little bit. Come come back down to our stomping grounds. Well, yeah. so you would go to authenticintimacy.com to That's find right. that schedule. Yep. And also uh, th- these books that we've talked about, can, can they be ordered from your website? They can, yes. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure, Julie, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. You too. Thanks. Keep up the great work, John. Thank you very much. Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize relationships for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this or any of our episodes. Send us an email to relationshiprewire at gmail.com. So you're able to edit this just in case my dog barks or something?